Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Elise. Host of Crackle and Open with Mike and Elise. A podcast about brews, news, and pop culture reviews. Every Friday, we choose a new craft beer from a different brewery and talk about... The history of the beer. What's in it. How it was made. The history of the brewery. Along with tasting notes and more fun facts. After that, come chill with us as we bring you the latest in pop culture news and reviews. So check out Crackin' When Open, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hello there. I'm Colleen. I'm Anders. And I'm Daniel. We're three nerds that met through our love of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. Of course, one of our favorites is George Lucas's signature achievement, Star Wars. And if there's one thing the internet definitely doesn't have enough of, it's nerds talking about Star Wars. So here we are with yet another Star Wars podcast, where each week we discuss one of the films in the current Star Wars canon. From the sands of Tatooine to the levels of Coruscant, we cover it all. Yet another Star Wars podcast is available wherever you get your podcast and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness. For he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. Week number two here uh, under the Forgotten Entertainment banner on the QT, the Quentin Tarantino film podcast. If you listened to us last week, I'm John and I'm Lloyd, and uh, we're going through the 10 films in the uh, in the Quentin Tarantino universe. I guess you could say uh, the films he has directed, not all the ones he's written. Uh, Last week was Reservoir Dogs. Thanks again to our friend and guest, uh, the redheaded stranger, Laura, (laughs) for uh, for sitting with us on that one. Uh, this no matter week, how long we know her, she'll be the redheaded stranger. She's the redheaded stranger. That's it. We met her on the internet. It's creepy. So yeah, this week we are obviously, if you know anything about Quentin Tarantino, we're we're pulling right into Pulp Fiction again. As we said on the last episode, uh, I kind of did a draw from the hat for our guests, and as I said last week for Reservoir Dogs, Laura obviously picked a winner. And our guest today, our buddy Shane from the Media Mosh podcast, who has been uh, who's guested on our show, Pine of Comics, several times. Um, I think he probably picked, uh, his name getting picked for this might be the big dog that everybody was hoping he, for. Yeah, he, he picked the jackpot. Yes, I did. Thank you for having me on. But yeah, I was uh, it was funny because I laughed. I was talking to Chris and I was like, how cosmic is it that my name gets pulled? For this movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I have a question now we're going to get into in a second, we're going to get into like kind of our histories with Pulp Fiction, but like you tweeted something yesterday uh, from recording that you were going to watch the movie, but right. you, you mentioned a number Shane. Now was that a, was that maybe a fake number or was that an approximation of a real number of how no, many times you watched this? That's an approximation of a real number. It's well over a hundred times I've seen this movie. Damn. And uh, but I haven't seen it in about five years. So just indulge me real quick. Post high school, I was joining the military. So I had to wait like three months for some reason. Right. And back then we had the black box. So we got pay-per-view movies. If you remember the black box. Oh, yeah. 
Pulp Fiction was on that. I'm not lying to you. You could ask Chris. I watched Pulp Fiction two times a day for at least 90 straight days. Sometimes three. That's Good where Lord. I was at wow. in my life. <laughs> All right. Two and a half hour movie. Yes. <laughs> All right. So maybe maybe the military did need to give you a little discipline or or maybe not discipline, maybe something to do. Uh, right. <laughs> having seen it over 100 times, but not in the last five years and, and your military stuff, let's say, what, 20 years ago. So, yes. So that was a while ago while watching it for this uh, for this podcast. Were you easily like reciting lines before they were coming out or have you kind of forgotten oh, it? No, I, I was easily reciting lines before they came out. I did enjoy the performances more after not watching it for a while, especially John Travolta's and Samuel Jackson's performances. So I think that's a good start. That's a good, good story to start off with my story. Cause I think Lloyd has a really good one too. My story is, as I mentioned, I had seen reservoir dogs on video, enjoyed it. And back in the day, there was no internet. Uh, I used to go to the movies all the time with friends and I had not really heard of Pulp Fiction coming out. I mean, I knew Tarantino had another thing coming out, but it wasn't like, you know, the deluge of information nowadays. I think I saw the trailer like the day before it came out. John Travolta crime movie. Hadn't heard of Travolta in a couple of years. And me and my friends went. This thing opened on October 14th, 1994. I would have been two weeks away from turning 19 years old. So I was 18 when this came out. And yeah, me and my friends went. So my story nothing near 100 times but there the period from probably october of 94 through maybe february or march of 95 because remember movies used to play a lot longer and this was a mainstay this stayed for a long time is me and my friends went back to the theater and saw this easily nine times we would just be like what are you doing tonight Uh, nothing going on let's go see pulp fiction again and it became a communal thing where like, you know, you know, I, I hate to say it because I hate that type of person now, but we're in the theater <laughs> sprouting out lines. You know what I mean? Um, I remember my good friend Barry one time in the beginning when, when uh, Honey Bunny uh, screams out, you know, the, the everybody, anybody move and I'll execute every last motherfucking one. Yeah, he dropped that and we're all laughing. Bunch of douchebag kids, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I feel bad if you were in the uh, in the Connecticut area going to see Pulp Fiction in 1994 when we were in there. But but that's it. So uh, I think what's interesting about it is it's a film that I love. All right. I'm going to give that right out right there. Saw it probably 10 times, nine times in the theaters came out in video. I watched it several times again. I have a clear memory of watching this with my wife, my girlfriend at the time, my wife now in probably about 2001. And I remember she didn't really care for it. It wasn't her thing. And I honestly think that might've been the last time I've seen it. And it's, it's weird. Like you said, Shane, the familiarity, cause I've watched this two nights ago and it was like, I had seen it yesterday, but I'm pretty sure I could say I easily haven't seen this in maybe easily 20 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I just don't know what happened. I own the Blu-ray. I just, I, I guess I saw it so many times. I never felt like I have to throw this in now because I almost feel like I lived in that movie having seen it enough. Not nothing like Shane, Shane fucking Shane's the landlord of Pulp Fiction, <laughs> but yeah, he's the landlord. But Lloyd, you've got a, you've got a super interesting story because of, uh, of what this, uh, what your first viewing of Pulp Fiction revolved around. What was that? Right. So um, this came out what, October 14th, you said October 1994. Yep. I, I met a, a young lady in 1994 at the gym. And one night we decided to uh, go out with a bunch of uh, folks and we went to a little place called Murphy and Scarletti's over in Farmington. And we were hanging out in there and she and I got to talking and uh, we both started talking about this movie. And so um, this was early November. And I was like, no, I haven't seen it yet. I want to go see it. And she's like, well, I want to go see it too. So let's go. <laughs> so she sort of like just pulled me right in. And uh, we went to see it on November 4th, 
um, which was a day before her birthday. And um, so that was our first date. My my wife and my first date was Pulp Fiction. Uh, nice. November 4th, 1994. Your wife, your wife that you're with now. Yeah. Still three, with three kids later. So that answers, the universe, that answers the universe, universal question of is an anal rape scene in a movie on a first date, a deal breaker. And apparently it was <laughs> no, not, no, <laughs> it was it not sealed the deal. <laughs> it sealed, it sealed the deal. Apparently. All right. So as we said, this is uh, uh QT's second film directed by uh, Quentin Tarantino screenplay. Um, by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Qu- Qu- actually, yeah, let me take that back. Screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, but the stories by Quentin Tarantino and his writing partner, Roger Avery. This was originally conceived in like 1990 as like a film project that they were going to try to do with a third director. And it was going to be kind of, we'll talk about the story structure in a minute, but it was going to kind of be like three different stories directed by three different people. Something I didn't realize uh, on our last uh, episode, the Reservoir Dogs episode, is that Roger Avery wrote all of Stephen Wright's radio dialogue in Reservoir Dogs. So oh, yeah. every little, uh, what is it, K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s uh, interlude was actually written by um, by Roger Avery. Roger Avery also <laughs> wrote and directed a very cool, um, around the same time, uh, crime thriller called Killing Zoe. Um, I don't know if either of you guys ever saw that. And he also wrote, which I didn't realize, the um, very recent Robert Zemeckis CGI uh, Beowulf uh, adaptation. So, so he's been around a bit. As a matter um, of fact, I just found that in my closet on HD DVD. Oh, HD DVD. You, yeah. you, you chose <laughs> I had poorly. To toss it. You chose poorly. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> all right. So just a couple quick things before we start getting into a little bit more. This was filmed over all of oh, this. Takes, this is essentially an L.A. crime story. This was filmed all over Los Angeles, uh, Glendale, Beverly Hills, North Hollywood. Very interesting tidbit. The Hawthorne Grill in Hawthorne, California where the opening and closing segments of the film take place is now an auto zone. So get in the zone, auto zone. <laughs> uh, and this yeah, was they had to tear that place down. They tore it Sad. down. They tore it down and they put up a fucking auto zone. This was filmed between September 20th to November 30th, 1993. Now, since we finished off with the reservoir dogs, which came out in 92 in between this time, Tarantino's had a couple other movies come out. Uh, right before this, in terms of what he wrote, Natural Born Killers came out right in the summertime. Um, and he had written that and a year prior, True Romance. So this is he's building up. Right. So he didn't direct either of those. But you're starting to see this guy become more and more of a uh, force in Hollywood. Yeah. So, Lloyd, what do we what do we got? Uh, why don't we you want a bumper sticker? Or where do you want to go right now? Uh, so basically, this is the story of it combines the story of the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster and his wife a pair of diner bandits and they're all woven together in four um, funny, bizarre, thrilling tales of violence and redemption. All right. Very fair. Do you want to go through the story structure? So the folks out there, because one of the things that immediately catches you, Shane, I mean, I don't know if you felt the same way, but like when I saw this back in 1994, I can't think of a movie I'd ever seen that played with the scene structure and time like this did you, do you agree with that? No, I totally agree. Like this is like one of the first, and I think it's the best nonlinear storytelling I've seen in a movie period. And I think that's what drew me in the first time I saw it. I've never seen a movie kind of structured that way. Reservoir there have been movies, but this one just, just hits on all cylinders. Uh, the dialogue is snappy and engaging and it drives a story. There's so much momentum and, you know, the changing narrative structure just keeps you constantly interested. Like what's yeah. going to happen next at every single moment. Reservoir dogs plays with time structure as well but it's a little bit less 
Um, it's a little bit more straightforward, I think. Yeah. Right. You know, this one, you'd have to kind of look at it. Well, let's go over, let's go over the story structure real quick and then kind of talk about that. All right. So you've got basically it's bookended. The, the film is bookended by a prologue and an epilogue of the diner bandits. And then in between those, there's three stories. You've got the story of the hitman Vincent Vega and Mia. And then you have the second story of prize fighter Bruce Coolidge. Butch. And then the, what'd I say? Bruce. Butch Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got the third story of the hitman Jules Winfield. That's the structure. Um, if you want to get like, we'll get into it in a second, but if you wanted to get real, I guess, uh, uh, linear with this thing. I guess someone at some point had kind of edited it. Edited yeah, I've got it. it all written down here too. <laughs> yeah. Into what the structure would be. What would be the first scene in the movie if it was edited correctly or, or linearly, I guess. Linearly. All right. So let me give you what the chapters are now. Okay. All right. So the chapters, I'm going to give you seven chapters. First chapter is the prologue, the diner. All right. Second chapter is the prelude to Vincent Vega and Marcellus's wife. The third chapter is Vincent Vega and Marcellus's wife. The fourth chapter is the prelude to the gold watch, which is a flashback in a present story. And then the fifth chapter, you've got the gold watch. The sixth chapter is called the Bonnie situation that deals with Jules. And the seventh chapter is the epilogue, the diner part two. And if you were to put these in a, in a linear order, prelude to the gold watch would be the first thing. That's right. And the gold watch would be the end. The very last scene of this movie technically is when Bruce Willis and, uh, and Butch and Fabian take off on the chopper. That's that right. Would, that yeah. would be the last scene of this movie. Um, it's, it's amazing after not having seen it in so long, kind of like pushing that stuff around in my head. All right, let's jump into, well, let's jump into the cast. Let's talk about who's in this movie. This is going to be a huge fucking list, but we could do this. <clears throat> right. All right. So you've got John Travolta as Vincent Vega, the uh, hitman who works for Marcellus. Marcellus Wallace, you know, he, he provides to me anyway, he's kind of like, just got this ingenuously goofy charisma, you know, he's, he's sort of like unsuspectingly innocent and just goofy. And it totally, you know, resurged his career because before this, he was, I guess, in a bit of a slump. I mean, nobody was really using him much. This is the second comeback to Shane. Do you remember what the first comeback was a couple of years prior to this? For John Travolta? Yeah. I know he's kind of dead in the water after Look Who's Talking too. Look Who's uh, Talking 1 was the first one. Yeah. Right. Look Who's right. Talking 1 came out and the guy hadn't been heard from in years. Right. And it, what's funny is you never think about it because you you don't always place people together. But Bruce Willis voiced the baby in Look Who's Talking. So oh, he, that's right. Those guys were in that together. You never think about that stuff. There's a lot of connections <clears throat> between these movies and, and other movies as well. Um, so he accepted a reduced rate of $150,000 to make this movie but he also got an oscar nomination for the best actor and a total you know revitalized his career he was hot for like six or seven years after that oh absolutely michael madsen who played vic vega in reservoir dogs he was really supposed to be this character but he was involved with wyatt earp and so they wrote it you know for uh, for this character instead when i was doing research on this about actors like madsen who said no to this movie yeah, they regretted it. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> they all regretted it. There's several that were offered a role that said no for whatever reason. And every one of them regretted it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I know Har Harvey Weinstein even pushed for Daniel Day-Lewis for that part as well. Yep. <laughs> that son of a bitch. Uh, all right. So the next one, we've got Samuel L. Jackson as Jules Winfield. He's Vincent's partner. He basically, to me, provides the soul and the spirit. 
really, uh, of the movie. He did write, Tarantino did write it with Jules, um, the Jules character with, with Jackson in mind. But Jackson's first audition kind of went off script and Samuel Jackson was not ready for that. And I guess he had a, a, a bad sort of reading. And after that, it was actually offered to, um, oh, shit, what do I have written here? Paul Calderon. Paul Calderon. Paul Calderon, who plays the uh, the bartender, who says, oh, you know, that's it. Yeah. My, my name is Paul and the shift between y'all. Yeah. <laughs> he actually was going to be given the role after Jackson had a bad uh, had a bad uh, audition. And uh, and Jackson, I guess, talked Tarantino into letting him stay on, you know, uh, kind of getting into the into the like weird structure of this movie again. Something that I don't think I ever noticed in any of my viewings before. And it makes sense, but you just don't think of it necessarily at the time. So in in the jumping a little bit ahead in the scene where Butch throws the fight and Vincent Vega is going to Butch's dressing room to talk to Marcellus about, you know, where's where is he and and find him? He's with Paul. He's not with Jules because Jules has quit at this point. And I never really put two and two together. I, I never really paid attention to the fact that that apparently like in this world, Paul would have been Jules's replacement. Like he's like the next guy or he's another guy. You know what I mean? Like they're not together because at that point, Jules has already told Marcellus at the meeting prior. I'm done. I don't mean to contradict you, but he's with Marcellus. Who's with Marcellus. Are you talking about when, when um, Butch goes back and gets his watch? No, no, no. I'm talking about when when, Shane, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. When he first throws the fight, when the fight is over and he has to get out of town. Yeah. You you got a shot of Vincent and Paul walking down the hallway to meet Marcellus in the dressing room. And that's when, that's when, when uh, Vincent says to uh, Mia, like, how you doing? Yeah. I just got mixed up there for a second. Yeah. No, no, no. I I noticed that. that, I noticed that as well for the first time after not seeing it for five years, like in the hundred times I watched it, I never really put that together. I finally recognized that fact when I saw it last night because I was taking notes this time. I was like, seriously, <laughs> I was taking notes. <laughs> and I wrote that scene down. I was like, okay, that, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Cause so essentially the scene where they go to bring the briefcase to Marcellus, which takes place after the second diner scene, is when Jewel says, I'm done. Right. And from that point forward, you don't see him again. And it's just, again, it's another part of the, of the kind of genius and the narrative structure that, you know, that make you go, oh, shit, I never noticed that before. Right. And what I didn't notice before is John Travolta is the only actor who's in all four of these vignettes. Yep. Right. Yeah. Vincent Vega is the only character that carries through every one. Well, two brief moments in the gold watch, uh, you know, him going to see Marcellus and right. him getting shot in the toilet. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So who else we got? All right. So we have Uma Thurman as Mia Wallace, uh, the wife of Marcellus. And uh, she's basically uh, an aspiring actress and she needs to, well, not she, but Vince Vega needs to take her out on a date, basically, because Marcellus is out of town and you got to keep Uma Thurman busy. You know, you can't you just leave her busy. home alone. She's she's got what well, Shane, what's what is the character's reputation for uh, for gangsters that have taken her out and taken care of her before? <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Thrown through a second story uh, glass structure. Yeah. Yeah. He gave I, her a foot massage. Yeah. A, a foot massage led to a, to a speech impediment. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can tell Vince Vegas, you know, working up to figuring out what the hell he's going to do. Cause he don't want that to be him. Who would? No. And you know what? That's the scene where, where Travolta is in the bathroom talking to himself. Oh, that's a great scene. It's fucking genius. It's, that's it's one of my favorite scenes. And it's like my second favorite scene in this movie is that bathroom scene. And we talk about loyalty and he's going to go out there and just tell her, have a good night. And 
and go home and talk in the mirror to That's all you're going to do. (laughs) Hey, there's another bathroom. So that's a great bathroom scene. But every time that fucking um, Vince goes to the bathroom, some shit goes down. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a theme in the movie. Every time Vince goes to the bathroom, so much so, listen, so much so that I read like and this is just fan theory, but I read this whole thing about how after the overdosing with Mia happens like Vince go like you're supposed to, uh, I guess kind of figure that Vince like drops drugs totally and is going, is going cold. And apparently heroin will constipate you. And that's like supposed to be kind of like an underlying reason he keeps going to take a shit is because he's getting, he's getting clean. That has, that is not uh, like something Tarantino's come out with, but that's something someone put out there, but it does kind of make you laugh because he goes to take a shit two times in this movie. And then he goes in the bathroom to talk to himself. And every time something bad happens, it's uh, hilarious. Uh, also associated with that role uh, was Holly Hunter and Meg Ryan. Obviously wasn't any of those, but oh, also Alfred Woodward. And Meg Tilly. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uma Thurman is, is a, a beautiful woman, but that, that wig, that haircut, that just kills me. That just kills me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Then you have Harvey Keitel as Winston Wolf. He's the cleaner who basically comes to uh, clean up the, the mess that Jules and Vincent made. Or I should say Vincent, really. Okay. I got a question about, uh, about the wolf. Shane. How many, like, and I've said this from the first time I saw this movie. So it was just something this reminded me of how many, like, like, I don't know, like, um, like suit and tie parties happen at eight in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) None that I could think of. He's dressed in a suit and tie. There's like champagne glasses. He's at some kind of fucking, (laughs) I think it was an all night affair. Okay. All right. I'm looking at it. It was an overnight thing. Okay. Usually it's done by eight o'clock. Usually it's done by like five, five to six. You're winding down. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not these guys. Nobody parties like a wolf party, I guess. All right. I just, (laughs) I've always thought that was funny because they literally tell you that it's like eight o'clock in the morning. Right. And they call him and he's like, he's, you know, he's at like a fucking dinner party. It's weird. So moving on from Harvey, you got Tim Roth as Ringo (laughs) slash pumpkin. One of the burglars. He's a, he's a diner bandit. You know, he was also in, in Reservoir Dogs with, with Kaitel. This time he speaks with his natural London accent, yep. which is a definitely bonus because not so good in the Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> He's not terrible, but it's no, it's, it's not that, terrible, but it's super. No, he, him doing an American accent is very like we talked about in the Reservoir Dogs episode. It's very obvious. He's doing an American accent, right? Exactly. And then his partner is Amanda Plummer as Yolanda slash Honey Bunny, who, uh, you know, she's great. She's absolutely great in this. Roth brought her on. Actually, he wanted Tarantino to write a part for her. You cannot yeah. convince me that Amanda Plummer is not totally fucking nuts in real life. Oh, she's got to be. <laughs> she is not a normal, uh, not a normal woman. No, nope, not at all. Man, oh man. Ving Rames as Marcellus Wallace, the the crime boss and employer of Jules and Vincent, according to uh, the producer. What's his name? Bender. Lawrence Bender. Yeah. Lawrence Bender. Yeah, Lawrence. Um, he gave one of the best auditions he had ever seen. And basically this, this led him to a lot of more high profile roles and really, really uh, started his career. Somebody that turned that role down that uh, said no to it. Shane, do you know this one? I don't. Sid Haig. Sid Haig. (laughs) Sid Haig Uh. said no to Marcellus Wallace and regretted it. He said afterwards, I think it worked better than Ving Rhames though. I'm I'm fine with it. And you know, it's cool. We talked about like Travolta, this being like a return to, uh, to form for him or, or, you know, a big boost for Ving Rhames and Samuel L. Jackson. This movie was star maker, you know, 
Because think about it. Samuel L. Jackson had been around for a while. He'd done like little things here and there, but this was, you know, Jurassic Park, but he was a small role. This was the thing that, you know, got him a Best Supporting Actor nomination. The the Ezekiel speech, you know, becomes super famous, bad motherfucker wallet. You know, he's the guy. Ving Rhames, you know, essentially had never been in much of anything at this point. And two years later, he's on the Mission Impossible squad. Series, right. And I also wrote Tim Roth. This like launched him into bigger movies. because He went on a five-year, six-year streak where he was in everything from like hoodlums to like, you name it, he was in it. And Uma Thurman as well. Like this movie like did so much for almost every actor in this damn movie. Uma Thurman in particular, because she essentially became the marketing for this yes. movie. Every poster, everything was her laying on the bed. You know what I right. mean? Smoking the cigarette. And, and that yep. was the, that is the visual. If I think if you were to say, think of Pulp Fiction, a visual, you're going to go to Uma Thurman laying on the bed. Right. Exactly. Then you have Eric Stoltz as Lance. Uh, he's Vincent's drug dealer. Um, Gary Oldman was actually one of the preferred choices for that role, who played a great drug dealer in uh, in True Drexel. Romance. Yeah, Drexel. Yeah, Drexel. He must have thought it was White Boy Day. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rosanna Arquette as Jody, his wife. Um, believe it or not, Pam Greer uh, read for the role, but Tarantino didn't believe that audiences would think it's plausible that the Lance character would be yelling at her. It's, well, <laughs> I totally agree. I agree. And it would have been sad if he had not given her the lead in his next movie. Yeah, so, exactly. right. He didn't waste her. He kept her in the wings. Uh, and I'll just mention him, but her brother, uh, Robert Arquette, later to become Alexis Arquette, played the fourth man, uh, guy who emerges from the bathroom. Yeah. So you, miraculously misses them with every shot. You, you might you might remember him uh, best as uh, George in The Wedding Singer. He is the uh, boy George keyboard player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, I mean, do you, have, do you have more or no? I got two, three more. All right, go ahead. Three more. Christopher Walken as Captain Coons, a U.S. Air Force Vietnam vet who delivers uh, the watch, the coveted gold watch to Butch, to a, a young Butch. Shane, real quick. Where did he hide the watch? <laughs> Up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That, the, the, the scene where Coons explains the heritage of the watch to young Butch is fucking genius. Christopher Walken is genius. Just the look on the kid's face where he's just like, you know, (laughs) he's really listening to him, you know, and you, and later in the movie when, you know, you know, you know, Butch has grown up, but later in the movie when he's so freaked out over the watch being, being missing, you kind of understand that even though he was like five or six, that it wasn't like a lifetime of him learning about this watch that got him to that point. It was that moment. Like that he, moment. he yes. truly took every, all the shit. He said, what is this kid going to understand about uh, Hanoi pit hell? And he's not going to know anything, but he literally understood everything. And that imprinted on him. Um, and you get that from that. Again, we talk about Tarantino on the show. Obviously it's a Tarantino show, but his dialogue is so fucking dynamite. In this movie there are there are lines in this movie that I cannot even explain why I love them and I love them. One in particular is uh, one one scene in particular is at the end of the Butch Marcellus fiasco, and it's the whole scene where Butch and Marcellus are talking about you know are we good? That whole thing is great, and one of my favorite lines in this whole movie, and I couldn't even tell you why, is uh, what does he say? <laughs> Your LA privileges are revoked. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a little line, but it says so much. You know what I mean? I'm sorry. Keep going, Lloyd. This movie. No, you're right. You're right. It's the dialogue drives this thing. Dialogue in this movie is better than action scenes in most other movies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
this is the best written movie I've ever seen. That's why this is my number one movie of all time. Like nothing would be better than this for me. This movie is cool. That's all I think about. It's like this movie is fucking cool. And it's the best written movie. That's why I think it translates time. Like you can watch this movie in any year and it'll make sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Two more to finish this off. Bruce Willis as books as <laughs> You're not going to get that name right, dude. <laughs> Let me start that over. <laughs> Bruce Willis as Butch Coolidge. He's an aging boxer uh, on the run from Marcellus because he double-crossed him. Uh, Marcellus paid him to throw the fight, uh, be the palooka, and he doesn't. He wins the fight, actually kills the guy, takes off. One real note in this. Uh, this is what I read. Harvey Gattel actually convinced Bruce Willis to take the role as uh, Butch because he liked Reservoir Dogs so much. And Tarantino said Butch is the one who keyed Vincent's car. Oh, yes. yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 You kind of assume that, but he, you know, and a lot of times directors or writers won't come out and say that stuff. Yeah. He came right out and said it. Yes. Butch was the one. Why not? Right. You call him Palooka. Call him a Palooka. You call him Punchy. <laughs> and honestly, for no fucking real reason. Just because right. you looked at him, I mean, I get it. They're they're two criminals, two tough guys. But yeah, like no fucking reason. Yeah, yeah hey friend. And Bruce Willis, uh, again, not to the extent of John Travolta, but 1994 Bruce Willis needed a hand. Like, oh, that's absolutely. right. He took a serious pay cut, even yeah. though his his cut was eight hundred thousand. Uh, he also got a percentage of the box office, which really soared right up there yeah he had to i mean again this isn't die hard or die hard Two, bruce willis this is color of night bruce willis yeah. you know, hudson hawk hudson hawk this is this is shit ain't going the way i wanted it to go <laughs> bruce willis you know and this kind of again re-energize his career yep and the last one maria de medeiros as fabian bruce willis's uh, butch's girlfriend really so some- cute portuguese actress who is also in henry and june with uma thurman Something that hasn't changed in the 20 years since I saw this last is that she still fucking annoys me. There's just something about her voice. Um, <laughs> if if I were to give this at the end of this, when we rate this, if I were to give this any less of the rating I were to give it, it would be based on her. Oh, <laughs> she she fucking kills. Shane, do you feel the same way? John, I swear to God, we're on the same vibe right now. I'm like, this is the only thing. This is the worst part of this goddamn movie is Fabian. Yeah. Yeah, she's definitely Wills. the weakest link. Yes. Her scenes with Bruce Willis in the hotel drive me crazy. I hate her. I want her dead. Yeah. I don't like her. She brings <laughs> down this entire movie. I, I can't stand it. I had a memory of thinking. Every time I saw this movie in the past, I thought Bruce Willis should just jump on top of Esmeralda de Villalobos because right. <laughs> she's, she's pretty hot and she's not nearly as fucking annoying as Fabian uh, or whatever her name is. Fabian. Oh, Fabian. Yeah. She's Fabian, annoying, yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah. Yeah. I don't tend to think that there's any weaker segment in this. I think all the segments have their merit, but out of the whole movie, her and him in the hotel room. Is the, the weakest link is the weakest link, uh, but uh, but it's so tiny. Uh, but it, but even then, the dialogue feels real. It feels lived in. It feels like they are like a weird, like brand new couple, you know, sugar pop and all that shit, you know. But she's still she's fucking annoying as fuck. Oh, she's annoying. And I, I was pissed at her just about as much as as uh, Butch was for not remembering or not saying whether she remembers if she got the watch or not. Can I tell you something about that uh, scene though? I'll, let me tell you something real quick about that scene. I love that dialogue again mm-hmm. because i felt myself in that dialogue i felt myself 
I felt that way towards my wife or other people where you kind of say you, you, you think that you're clear and they didn't get it maybe. And you start getting crazy. He throws the yeah, TV. Just tell me if you got it one way or the other, he throws the TV and then he immediately goes, it's not your fault. I didn't, <clears throat> I didn't give you how important it was, mm-hmm. but then like you, cause you see, he loves her and he doesn't want to scare her. But then like in the next thing, when he's driving to the car, he's like, I fucking told her. <laughs> <laughs> have, have either That's one of exactly you what I would do. not felt that way. Right. Oh, yes. We have right. all done oh, yeah. that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. you want, you want to save face and go, baby, I love you. You, you know, I understand this isn't your fault. And then as soon as you get out by yourself, you're fucking, you're slamming shit around. <laughs> absolutely. All right. So now that we got the cast through, why don't we kind of go through uh, a little bit here and there uh, with, uh, with some of our favorite scenes in this film, uh, Shane, why don't you highlight a couple things that like always stand out to you or that you actually you just love? Uh, well, I love, like I said, 95% of this movie, uh, but my favorite scenes after watching it, two nights ago definitely was the John Travolta Uma Thurman scene where they go to Jack, uh, uh, Jack Robert Slims. And then she has the overdose and then they go to Eric Stoltz's place to kind of revive her. Cause that was a long, that was one of the longer scenes in the yeah. entire movie. So that encompassed a lot of, of lot of things. That's my favorite scene of the movie. If I had a second, it'd be when they accidentally shot Marv in the back seat <laughs> and they had to clean up the brains. I that think scene. that might be the most memorable scene of the entire movie. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, that scene is like my second favorite scene. Like when I rewatched this, I I kept thinking to myself, God damn it. Like John Travolta is so fucking cool in this movie. And I'm sorry for all you like Grease fans and Urban Cowboy fans. But this is John Travolta's like opus. This is the best thing he's ever done in his career. Oh, by, oh, by yeah. far. Uh, yeah. Right. By far. Yeah, he, he personified this movie. And so did like Samuel Jackson. So those are my two favorite scenes. Everything with John Travolta and Uma Thurman rang true for me. Like I love the fact that when he walked into her apartment and even though she can hear what he's saying, she still made him like hit the intercom button. That yes. made me laugh. That made me laugh when I watched it the other night. Cause I'm like, you can hear him, but you're making him like touch the button and speaking to her. And you yeah. got that, uh, son of the preacher man song yes. in the background. It's another thing we didn't even talk about yet. Oh, we'll get to the that. Music. Yeah. Right. So little details that I missed, like, you know, probably in a while that hit me. I'm like, shit, that was genius. Or that is so goddamn funny. Mm-hmm. And the music just, sprinkles in at the right time like tarantino i don't want to say he's the best but he's one of the best putting together soundtracks and implementing music in his movie structures because this soundtrack was all over the place when it came out like son of a preacher man jungle boogie like you name it al green it was yeah i I, those are my that's what i my takeaway so you're you're never look you're never going to hear miser lou by dick dale and not think of the opening credits of this movie. Oh, right. Yeah, no. You know, and I mean, that song was, was much older than this. It's not a super popular song per se, but like, you know, it's surf guitar, but like, right. You know, like literally you go somewhere now and, and someone were to play that you immediately picture the credits to Pulp Fiction going up. Right. Um, yes. Now I do want to say something that, to Shane's point that again, kind of like uh, in between what I said before about never noticing that uh, Jules wasn't with Vince in that lat in that scene in the arena arena. And this is something that, uh, you know, as, as a non-drug addict, I don't know, but so the line when Jules is buying the heroin from Lance 
and Lance says I'm out of balloons. Do you mind a baggie is so much more important than I ever oh, yeah. realized mm-hmm. because the only reason she snorted it is because it was in a baggie and she thought it was Coke. Now I understood that she thought it was Coke. I always understood that, but I never really thought about the fact that heroin apparently is mostly kept in balloons by addicts or by people that sell it. So that one little fucking detail ends up kind of costing, you know, Vincent, this fucking terrible night is that he chooses to have it put in a baggie instead of a balloon. And she, she, you know, stupidly, you know, shouldn't have done the Coke either. But by the way, LA, like you're just doing Coke on the sink in front of a bunch of other women. Is that a thing? thing, Apparently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She probably wasn't the only one. I God said, God damn. damn. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Manster, what's some of the, what's some of the stuff that, uh, that really uh, gets you going in Pulp Fiction? You know, I really enjoy that first scene um, with uh, Brett, you know, when they go in to get the, um, the briefcase from Marcellus. And they're heading in there, you know, there's the whole foot massage talk and all that. But once they're inside, every aspect of that scene is like shot perfectly just to show you the tension that's that's constantly building in there and and how um, like the position of power that Jules is. And you've got Brett sitting in the chair with um, Vince behind him where he can't even see him in the kitchen. And, you know, he's just spouting all these things and he's he's eating his burger and drinking his drink. Uh, you know, you got the really intense close up of Jules and then you, you've got the other guy shrinking down. It's just so well set up to deliver something because you know i mean this is like the beginning of the movie you don't really know what to expect yet and then but you know you just know something's happening and and you know there's no escape for this guy it just really delivers it just really sets up the whole entire movie right and i read where uh samuel jackson improvised when he flipped a table in that scene yeah that was actually frank whaley's natural reaction when he flipped that table and they just kept shooting that one shot. Yeah. One of the things I love about this movie and they establish it before they get to to the apartment, but you know, in so many movies, if we were to follow a couple hitmen to go in to kill a couple of guys that stole from their boss, it would be the hitmen get there, shoot them up. It's over. But like we meet these two guys in the car talking about McDonald's in, in, in Amsterdam. And one of the lines that I love that really exemplifies that is when they get to the door and he says, what time is it? And he's like 722. And then Jules says, we have, you know, it's not time yet. Let's hang back. They go back down the hall and talk more about the, uh, the Antoine Rockamora thing, right? The foot massage. And then at the end of that, he says to him, let's get into character. Like, like literally you're seeing these two. It's like you, me and Shane are talking right now. And then we go, let's go and get into character. And then we go murder a bunch of people. Right. 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 Yeah. We're just hanging out, talking. And then, all and then we got to do our job. And then we get caught and someone goes, do you hear about those three guys that killed those dudes? You know, like 20 minutes before they were recording a podcast. Like, you know what? Cause you don't, you don't normalize criminals or, or villains in, in, in film. You just, you kind of think that they're, you know, this kind of one note character. I love that. I love that when he says that. And yeah, you're right. When he goes in there and uh, you know, uh, when he shoots flock of seagulls and he's, he's, you know, <laughs> he purposely, one of my favorite things he does is when he, when he says, can I take a sip of your soda and drinks the whole fucking thing? Whole thing yeah. right. <laughs> you know, it's all power moves. It's all teaching Brett a lesson. It's a cornerstone of a good breakfast. It is. <laughs> Marcellus, <Cheeseburger. laughs> Marcellus Wallace. Do you guys agree? 
like for for like a, a, a like a some kind of criminal overlord, he gets double crossed a lot. <laughs> like yes. like Butch fucks him over, Brett fucks him over. Does this guy not like come across as fucking threatening? I, I don't know. Yeah, he but, seems badass to me. Yeah, yeah. You guys kind of pick those. I gotta say, especially the first time I saw this movie, it's not necessarily my favorite of the segments, but the the Bruce and Marcellus. <laughs> meet the hillbillies Uh, segment is incredible because I remember seeing this in the movies and you know, I I was a kid and it's even now, even in my forties movies don't often make me go, where's this going? And that whole bit made me go, where is this going? Like how, what does this have to do with anything else? Right. You know? So the guy, not gimp. Yeah. The guy knocks him out and then they're in, you know they got ball gags in their mouths and you're like okay bad shit's going to happen but like you know people don't get you know there's there's not going to be any like weird anal rape or anything in this <laughs> and then you know and then peter green who by the way is a fucking great character actor always plays a bad guy who plays zed he shows up and he says the words bring out the gimp and i i still remember seeing it the first time in the theaters and this time paying attention even more because you know, the guy Maynard is un- is undoing the box in the yeah, background yeah. and Lindsay, my wife hasn't seen this movie in, in 20 plus years. Doesn't remember. And when the gimp comes out, she says, she goes, that's not going to be good. <laughs> and <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. But like that whole segment. And again, it colors people with, uh, I guess you could say whose morals might not be the best. It colors them differently than you see, because think about the situation, you know, you, me, we're in the situation where we have just double crossed this guy. We have a chance to get away clean. He's being taken care of. You're going to get away. He's going to be killed. He's going to be killed. And if he's not killed, he's going to be kept some kind of weird sex puppet for a long time. You're gone. You get to go. (laughs) And Butch, decides to go back you know you yeah. get to, you, you see this guy who did this very questionable thing two things first of all he stole you know he stole the money that you know he had he you know it, it's all thievery i guess but he, he kind of went against any honor he might have had and stole it and he also has no fucking problem with the fact that he killed the guy in the ring you know he, he, right. kind, of, he kind of puts it off as well he shouldn't have gotten the ring with me that you know that night plus right. he freaking right. ran him over Right. And, and he runs Marcellus <laughs> over. Um, I don't know. I just I love that bit because, you know, it, it goes to show that this character is maybe still has some decency left in him. And also the fact that Marcellus doesn't kill him right then and there and doesn't renege on it. I mean, obviously, his attention somewhere else. But that whole bit. Yeah, I, it's I, the redemption that really makes that story. Yeah. I, I still, again, the thing I always remember about that bit is just wondering, you know, the rest of the movie, you're like, okay, I kind of can tell this is going to go there. This is going to go there. It, it's, it's told brilliantly, but it might not be shocking. But when you got to that whole bit in that pawn store, I did not have any fucking clue what was going on. Uh, Shane, do you agree? The first time you saw this a hundred times ago, oh, this was probably the most jarring scene. I, I, when I first watched it, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And you see the gimp come out of the box. And I'm like, what the, what, what the, you know, I had no idea that the game is just kind of just chilling there. Yeah, then they chain him up. Right. It was the most bizarre scene I've seen in a movie up until this point in my life. Because I was 17 when I saw this for the first time. Or no, six, 15 when I saw this for the first time. So, yeah, that was like bizarre. But I agree with Bruce Willis. I feel like he did what he did because it would 
not even things out with Marcellus, but it would make things copathetic with Marcellus where he knew is the right thing to do to do it. And if he did it, then he would square things up with him going forward. Big risk so, though. Cause Marcellus you know, big, big risk. Yeah. But considering the situation Marcellus was in. Yeah. Think, yeah. Marcellus, I think would have like did the right thing. Like your LA privileges are provoked, but like you go on, you got to get out of here. Don't come back to LA ever. Yeah. You're, you're done. You're, you're right. out of here. Yeah. It's man. It's, it's such an incredible movie. There's so much going on in this thing, watching it again for the first time in a long time the other night, it honestly felt there was a part of it that felt brand new to me. I mean, um, and, and you bring up again, the narrative, the soundtrack. I don't, I don't know if I would go as far to call it a perfect movie. Um, because Fabian's in it, so she kind of annoys Correct. me a little bit. She brings it down. She brings, <laughs> she brings it, down. it down a little bit, but not enough. Not not enough not to be rated really highly. Let's go through some of the characters. You essentially have three main characters in this. You have uh, Jules, you have uh, Vincent, and you have um, Butch. Do do you guys? I'll start with you, Lloyd. Do you have a favorite of those characters? Like, is there one that you you want to see the movie go back to more often? Uh, you know, it used to be Jules because I just love his arc and I love his delivery. Um, but I think the last time I watched it, you know, most recently, I really, uh, I go to uh, Vincent now. I really like the Vincent character and, you know, like what he's about his, his like I said before, his sort of goofy earnestness. Um, he's just, I mean, he's a killer. <laughs> oh yeah. But, you know, he just like, going back to that scene in the bathroom, you know, he's just talking himself through it. Uh, and I just love seeing all the scenes with Vince. All right, Shane, is there one that you, uh, I know you like Vince a lot. So, right. I flip flopped, uh, with Lloyd. It used to be Vince, but upon watching it again, I was drawn towards more jewels in his story arc and his, uh, redemption path as far as like, seeing the miracle in front of him that happened to him in that scene. And he yeah. truly was transformed as an individual and wanted to walk the path that he wanted to walk towards the end of the movie. So I, I resonated this time more with Jules and his scenes and the way Samuel Jackson portrayed that character. Vince is a, I mean, it's, it's razor thin between Jules and Vincent and Butch is a, you know, I enjoy Tim Roth scenes more than I enjoyed Butch's scenes in this movie. Yeah. No, knock on, no, no knock on Bruce Willis, but you know what I mean? I, I agree. If there has to be yeah. a, 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 a weak link in the threesome, it's Butch's stuff. I mean, even though I called out the pawn shop as a great moment, it's still the weakest stuff. Um, yeah, I, I think I used to really enjoy the Vincent stuff, too, and I still do. But I think I kind of pay more attention to the Jewel stuff. Samuel L. Jackson just spits that dialogue out like it's on fucking fire. <clears throat> I mean, he, he's he's unreal. Um, there's some moments in this movie that I really love because it it's little tidbits of information you get along the way that don't add to the story really but add to a layered background there's one bit where uh when they're in um in, actually in the pawn shop where uh zed says to uh, maynard um go put him in russell's old room who's russell like you don't you want to know who russell is is russell the old gimp is this the, <laughs> is the new gimp another guy like I'm, I'm dead serious there's little bits and pieces that are said like the whole thing with um with vince in in amsterdam why did he go to Amsterdam for three years? Was he hiding? Did why did he come back? Um, there's a there's a brilliant moment in this. I don't know if either one of you guys noticed this or not. And I don't know if I've ever noticed this before watching this. When they're at Jack Rabbit Slims and Mia is making conversation with Butch, 
she asks him about Amsterdam. And then she says to him, you know, I go there once a year for about a month to chill out. And she has this look like she's lying because she wants to connect with him. Did you guys read that at all? Like, I, I just thought it was a brilliant acting choice. Watch it again. You could totally tell she's saying something to a guy that she just wants to talk to on his level. And she's probably never been to Amsterdam. Well, I uh, just watched a lot of the deleted scenes and there's other scenes that they shot where she goes way more into depth about, about Amsterdam and about a certain bar and a picture that she has on the wall. And Vince knows the picture that she's talking about. Oh, see, okay. All right. Well, that's uh, the way it's cut. I like, I like my thought. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. And your like thought's that. better. Your thought yeah. is better than the, the deleted version. If you if you watch the scene and the way she eyeballs him, it's almost like she's looking to elicit a reaction yeah, from him. She's certainly trying to make any kind of connection she can. Yeah, because it usually just sends a bunch of bunch of goons or whatever. And uh, right, I, I just love that uncomfortable Vince. that uncomfortable moment of silence that she says. I, I just love that line when she says that, like you know, enjoying the uncomfortable moment of silence between two people. Yeah. And, you know, she says something else that's really true. There's no better. You know, obviously I haven't felt this in a long time because of COVID, but there's no better feeling in the world than coming back from the bathroom in a restaurant and your food's on the table. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she is absolutely fucking right about that. When that happens to me in my life, I'm I'm about ready to do fucking cartwheels down the aisle. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my God, I didn't have to deal with the waitress at all. Yes. <laughs> oh, speaking of Jackrabbit Slims. Yeah, there's something I want to uh, point out. So. Their waiter is Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi yeah. who is mm, arguably a really bad waiter. There's nothing about him that stands out. He's not friendly. He's not really attentive. Or Are anything. you saying he doesn't deserve a tip? He doesn't deserve a fucking tip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which if you go back to Reservoir Dogs, you'll see that uh, that actor's character in that movie did not believe in tipping waiters. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. and Steve Buscemi was offered another role in this. Um, I had read it and I, I, I can't remember. It wasn't a big role. It was a bigger role than he got. And he couldn't do it because of filming commitments. So but he was able to do the cameo, um, which I found weird. There's I went on, uh, I think, IMDb and I found a chart of, you know, because obviously Tarantino, we've seen it with Keitel and Buscemi and Roth. And then you see it later with uh, Mia uh, Uma Thurman. He uses the same people a lot over and over again. Steve Buscemi has never done anything with him after this. He only did the first two movies. So he's got really? two. Yeah, he's never done another QT movie, which I, I find kind of funny. Oh, wow. Okay. I never really pieced that together myself. Holy yeah. Crap. You, you got to go on it. There's a chart. It has the actor's name and then the uh, the films and it gives a check to who's Right. Because even Tim Roth was in The Hateful Eight. Tim Roth was in the hateful eight. Yeah. He hadn't, I think he hadn't been in anything since uh Pulp Fiction. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's just it, three, two or three, like the most common number of appearances for actors. Yeah. there and, and then there were some that became like normals later, like Kurt Russell became a regular later in the right. last few movies. He had, he popped up, you know, in, in once upon a time and he pops up in hateful eight, obviously um, and death proof. So yeah, it was, it, you got to look at that chart. It's pretty interesting. Wow, um, okay. I'll, I'll put it up when we put this episode up. I'll, I'll put it up uh, as well. All right, Lloyd, is there anything that you could think of in particular? Uh, any things that connect the Tarantino universe in this film? Well, I got a few. Um, let's see if you have any more um, than mine. Uh, well, you've got in the in the scene with Brett, uh, the big kahuna burgers, which was also in Reservoir Dogs. And what else? Uh, from Dust Till Dawn. Dust till dawn, right? Uh, and then you've got the red apple cigarettes, and 
once again, the fruit brute cereal. I can't think of any beyond those. I don't know if this is a trivia or not. Cause, and I, I'm going to put it out there and maybe uh, a super fan knows the answer to this, but is the sword that uh, Butch gets in the pawn shop? Is that a Hatari Hanzo? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, we know it's not. So in kill bill two, Bud claims that he pawned his off, but we find out later that it was hidden in a golf bag. So that wasn't it. But I, I always wondered every time he goes to grab that, that sword, you know, they make it a point to show it. And later on, obviously we learn that, you know, the Hatari Hanzo is a big, you know, samurai sword maker in the, uh, in the, in the Tarantino universe. Shane, do you have anything, anything you noticed that, uh, that was through lines? Um, not that Lloyd didn't hit on like everything he hit on is everything I thought of. And I was racking my brain over is there anything else I could connect everything to and nah, he hit every point I was going to say. So I think the only other one that would be a big one. We talked about him a little bit before, but we didn't mention the connection is that Vincent Vega is supposed to be uh, Mr. Blonde's brother. Correct. Sure, yeah, I think there's a lot of connection between yeah. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. You know, that there's a lot of connections there and there was supposed to be a prequel movie that got just canned after yes. a while because he felt the actors are too old to set the Vega brothers. Yeah. Yes. To play yeah. younger characters, but now the aging, you know, who knows? <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm not big on that. The aging. I don't know me if I want either, to me either. If you've seen the, the recent Robert De Niro shit flick that was, uh, I avoided it, but yeah, it didn't, it didn't look great. <laughs> I guess I, I don't remember what character it was, but I think in, Django Unchained, there is a character uh, named um, Commander Coons, and I guess that's supposed oh. to be like a distant uh, oh, early, okay. early relative of, uh, of the Christopher Walken character. So there's another one. Yeah, Major Coons. Uh, you know, there are some other details that I picked out that, not that there's any kind of common thread, but just stuff that I, I got a kick out of seeing because yeah. I know stuff is put there on purpose. One of them would be the Band-Aid on Marcellus's head. Like, what the fuck is that Band-Aid for? Like, why does he need to have that Band-Aid? Right. So let, let me, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, Lloyd. Yeah. But let's uh, let's dive into this real quick, because the underlying theory is that Marcellus got his soul taken from him. And that's what's in the suitcase. That's why the Band-Aid is there. I don't give a shit what's in the case. To me, that could just be something to move yeah, the right. plot along. The MacGuffin. Right, the MacGuffin of the movie. And that's Tarantino's answer. It's a MacGuffin. There's right. no answer. And that doesn't bother me. Does it bother you that you don't know what's in the suitcase? Do you nope. think nope. it's his soul? Do you? Nope. 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 I think he Actually, definitely I did read something about the, what the Band-Aid is. He cut right. himself shaving. Right, Vin Rangs had a scar, and they're just covering it up, so it wasn't yeah. distracting. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, a couple of the theories are it's it's Marcellus's soul. He sold it to the devil. That's why the combo is six six six. The other yep. one is that it's um, Elvis's suit from True Romance. He has that gold suit. Oh yeah, I heard that. Um, I've heard that. But in the end, Tar you know, again, Tarantino doesn't come out and explain uh, everything to people. Um, right. but he has said it's a MacGuffin. It, it, right. He uses the whatever you want it to be. It is so, right. And that's fine with me. Do you remember who played Elvis in that uh, in that True Romance movie? Oh, it was Val Kilmer, baby. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, Val Kilmer. All right. Yep. <laughs> my favorite. One of my favorite lines. I like you, Clarence. Always have. Always will. <laughs> uh, another another funny thing was um, when they were delivering the adrenaline shot to Uma Thurman. Yeah. You could see sitting on an end table two board games. Operation in life. <laughs> oh, so really? If you think about it in the context yeah. of what was going on. I thought that was pretty funny. This is something I never got until this particular watching when they're ordering the milkshakes. Yep. You know, in Jackrabbit Slims, 
he asked him, you want that Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy? Oh, I always got that. I Talk- never really got that. That was vanilla yeah, and chocolate. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> stupid me, I guess. You know what I, I, I love Once about I made that-, that connection? Like, oh man. <laughs> you, know, you know what I love about that scene is that that is a scene that sticks this movie to 1994. Cause if you go to like a five guys tomorrow, their milkshakes are probably easily $5. Right. Like, yeah, right. $5 a, fi- a $5 milkshake is not an anomaly anymore. It's, it's a oh. thing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, another thing that I wrote down, I'm just seeing here, the waitress in the diner, you know, Garcon. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's the same waitress from Jackie Brown. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, at the end of the movie, um, when uh, the wolf takes uh, Raquel out for breakfast, you know who that is, right? Julia Sweeney. Julia Sweeney, who played It's Pat on the uh, Saturday Night yeah, Live yep, sketches. Yep, yeah. Yep. Which I always wondered, like, how did, like, it just seems like, it seems like a cameo. But I mean, maybe Tarantino's friends with her. I, I don't know the answer well, to. Remember, Kathy Griffin was in a cameo in this movie as well. Which yeah. is weird when you go back and watch this movie. It's like, okay, she's in this film? Okay. One of the yeah, funniest. That's right. She has a cameo. Yeah. One of the funniest damn scenes in this movie, and I, I'm sorry to say it, is when that when that lady in the white shorts gets shot in the hip. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed so fucking hard. <laughs> I'm sorry, lady, but that was some funny shit. <laughs> when when, uh, when Marcella, I love that when Marcellus pulls the gun out and they're all just like they take off. So when they're in the room after the shootout in um, in Brett's room, where they where they kill everybody, but. Marvin Nash. <laughs> Marvin Nash. Um, Marvin Nash. So the guy comes out of the bathroom, right? And, and shoots him and misses him. And then you see four bullet holes or whatever in the wall behind him. If you pause that before that guy comes out of the bathroom, you can see those same four holes in the wall. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sure there's some continuity stuff there. Um, yeah. You know, I, I did. It almost I looked of- intentional to me because it was so obvious. I did want to ask you guys, Shane, do you, did you find it weird that this, I guess maybe in the heat of the moment, you know, going in, but they, they asked the question very specifically, how many people are in the apartment? And he says it could be up to five, including right. our guy. When they walk in, there's only three guys visible, right? There's Marvin who Jules knows is, is their informant and then Brett and flock of seagulls, but right. they said three to five. Did you guys find it weird that they didn't search the rest of the, like they, I, I get it. There has to be the moment where the guy pops out, but it would have almost been better if he popped off from under the bed or something. Like, it just seems like they didn't put any, and again, maybe this is written in to be that these guys aren't the best criminals either. I don't know. Hmm. You know, I really didn't put much thought to that. Yeah. I just thought they, the way, especially John Travolta's character was like, just kind of like not chill, but like, I think once they entered the apartment, they just assumed that was maybe they're not the best hitman. <laughs> you know, let's yeah. put it that, that way. Maybe they're not the best hitman. I just assumed they just what they saw in front of them was going to be it, and they didn't need to search anywhere because it was kind of a small apartment. It's not like it was a a well laid out you know place. So yeah, I no, it was thought, tiny. Right, it was tiny. So I thought once they walked in there and saw what was in front of them, that was it. So I didn't think I didn't find it a surprise that they didn't search anywhere else in that apartment. Okay. All right. Fair. I just, I, I thought about that. Um, we get the first or the second trunk shot right before they walk into the apartment. That's Tarantino's famous for when they open up the trunk and they're complaining about not having shotguns. Shotguns. I did find this funny as well. And tell me if you guys found this funny when, when Butch goes to his apartment to get the watch, he sees Vincent's Mac 10 on the counter. Vincent's <laughs> taking a shit. It's got a silencer on it. When they go to kill these dudes at seven in the morning, they unload two fucking pistols into these three guys 
with no silencers at seven thirty in the morning. Yeah. Like I, I, I hadn't seen this in a long time and I immediately thought this is poor planning. Like he's going to silently kill Butch and they're going to fucking like as loudly as possible, murder these three kids. Right. Like I said, bad hitman, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I thought that too. But when I first watched it, cause they shot a uh, flock of seagulls like once, right. Right. Once or twice. But man, they unloaded on Frank Whaley's character. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. But, and I thought that was very excessive. <laughs> not just very part. not just very excessive, dangerous. One of them shooting from the front, front, one shooting from the back. Right. I thought, okay, all right, you guys might want to like, I mean, I'm sure they know what they're doing, but like what one's enough, right? This right. Is they unloaded their clips into that kid into that kid. And I thought the same thing, like no silencers. They they shot twelve times. Yeah, it's like, early in the morning. Super early. early. Seven twenty-two. <laughs> <laughs> they said seven twenty-two. <clears throat> they're eating. They're they're at Jimmy's house at, uh, at eight o'clock. Um, right. You know, speaking of that scene in in Butch's house, uh, there's another thing that I guess I just never made a connection, or just maybe just forgot about it. But when Butch goes in there. Right. And the place looks empty, but then he sees the, the gun, the Mac 10 on the counter. Um, and then I, and then, and then uh, Vince comes out of the bathroom. I always remember thinking, well, it's odd that he came out of the bathroom, but he wasn't surprised. Like he was making noise, right? He came in the house, he was getting pop tarts. It's, it, so, it's, yeah. But what I finally understood and this, I totally get it now is Vince wasn't there alone. That wasn't Vince's gun. That was Marcellus's gun. Jules was gone already. So he's Marcellus going to get the donuts. And, yeah. Marcellus was there with Vince, put his oh, gun down, went to get fuck. coffee. That's the whole connection. That's how that whole thing played out. So when he heard Br- Butch come in the house, he thought it was Marcellus returning. It wasn't surprised that somebody oh, was in the house. Shit, I've never pieced that together. That's, that's no, me neither. Went down. Yeah, me neither. That's yeah, why he saw Marcellus as you know as he was leaving. Wow, I've never put that together. Right? You you got me too. I I never ever thought of that because because yeah, he's leaving the apartment when he runs into Marcellus. And why exactly. is yeah, and why and, and why again does Marcellus have two coffees with him? Right. Why does he have a, a box of donuts? Holy yeah. Look at that, man. Look at that. Hey, right? Something new. Yeah. Oh my god. Finally there, put it together. There are people listening to the show right now going, these guys are doing the Quentin Tarantino <laughs> yeah, podcast. Right? <laughs> what are these idiots? What are these fucking idiots? Doing? I highly doubt all those people put that shit together. I'm no. calling you people out right yeah. now. Why don't we go through real quick uh, a little bit of uh the box office and then we're gonna do our individual ratings and then we're gonna get out of here. All right. Uh, let's go through this quick. So that weekend, uh, October 14th through the 16th, uh, top five, I'll give you little giants. Number five, the river wild. Number four, Wes Craven's new nightmare. Number three, the specialist. Number two, Pulp Fiction at 9 million. Number one. All right. So the budget for this thing was 8.5 million, by the way. Yeah. So first weekend it, it made its money. And then for the year, uh, 1994, the year so you've got pulp fiction came in at number 10 uh, 107.9 million so it's so little money compared to like what a movie does in one weekend now right <laughs> right uh then number nine you had the mask uh number eight speed number seven clear and present danger number six dumb and dumber number five the flintstones number four the santa claus number three true lies it's good Number two, The Lion King, which is good. And number one, Forrest Gump. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, Yeah, of course. This thing, uh, seven Oscar nominations, only one win, but still seven Oscar nominations for your second movie. Nominated for Best Picture, lost to Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump is a great movie, but not better than Pulp Fiction. Um, But I do like Forrest Gump. Best Director, uh, he did not win that year as well. Best Original Screenplay with Roger Avery, he did win. Um, Best Actor, Travolta, did not win. Best Supporting Actor, uh, Samuel L. Jackson, he did not win. Best Supporting Actress, Uma Thurman, she did not win. And Best Film Editing, Sally Mankey, she did not win. But obviously this thing, you know, I think it's very clear to say and very easy to say that even though we're only on movie two of the 10 that we're going to talk about, this is by far the cornerstone of Tarantino's career. This is the one that, you know, no matter who you are, you're probably going to identify with him. You could not like this movie. You could think that hateful eight is his best, but if if someone were to say to you quick name, a movie that Quentin Tarantino, you know, directed wrote, you're going to probably go to Pulp Fiction first because it was, this was a phenomenon. This movie was a fucking cultural phenomenon in 1994. And here we are 28, 27 years later. And it's still, you know, I'm sure there are kids, teenagers now watching this. And just like Shane said, there's there's a sense of timelessness to it. Because even though this was in the 90s, this movie feels like it could have been in the 70s. There's nothing anchoring it to a time almost. Right. So it's it's almost universal. All right, let's start off. We're gonna go, we're gonna finish with our guest. Five scale, quarter scale possible. Let's rate pulp fiction. I'm gonna start. I'll make it easy. I'm gonna start. Fabian excluded. Because she could be a little bit of a problem. I don't care. And this is probably the last one that'll get this because Reservoir Dogs got it as well. This is getting a five. This is a five fucking five star, five, whatever you want to call it, five firecrackers. Uh, this is a five star movie to me. I had no problem when I watched this the other night and one of my letterbox just hitting five on it. And I don't hit five on a lot of stuff. Dialogue, characters, quotability, everything we've talked about, a five. Lloyd, what do you give this? You know, there's there's no question. This is a five. You know, the linear structure demands your attention. Um, I'm not the, the nonlinear structure demands your attention. Uh, the dialogue, you know, is great. It's intoxicating to sort of rediscover how enjoyable a good movie can be. Yeah. You know, it's full of momentum and energy, uh, never slow or boring. It's a definite five quotable uh, like you wouldn't believe rewatchable, like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Five. Shane's seen this 176 <laughs> times. He said it's the, his favorite movie of all time. So all I'm going to say is if he gives it anything less than a five, I'm going to be thunderstruck, <laughs> but you're our guest. Now, before we, uh, we, you give your, your, uh, your number out, tell everybody out there in, uh, in on the QT land where they could find you and listen to you and what your show's all about. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, you can go to uh, my Facebook page, Media Mosh, or just go to the Apple Podcast Store, download me there. It's Media Mosh. And I just kind of try to talk about anything going on, like Apple TV, Amazon, Netflix, all the streaming services, and just kind of what I watch, my particular view on everything, and try to give you the average Joe's perspective on just what's going on. So I try to keep it short. That's what I pride myself on. Like every podcast is like 20 to 25 minutes. So it's very just, you know, listenable. <laughs> it's not that long. And you're right. I give this again. I, this is my favorite movie of all time. I'll defend this movie to the hill. Even with Fab, Fabian in it, it's a five. I mean, it's a five. The cultural, five. In, the cultural impact of this of this movie, the quotability, which doesn't make a movie good. But I mean, this movie is so fucking quotable and is probably the best well-written movie. And I go back 
to uh, True Romance with Patricia Arquette saying, you know, you're so cool. When I first saw this movie, this movie is the coolest movie I've ever seen in my life. It's still the fucking coolest movie I've ever seen in my life. It just exudes coolness. And the performances by Samuel Jackson and John Travolta, it, like I said, sorry, Urban Cowboy fans, it's the best he's ever done. Uh, I, there'll never in my book be a better movie than, than Pulp Fiction. That's a pretty solid statement. Well, I guess one more thing I didn't say earlier that I, I wanted to bring up is um, what is it? Uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Uh, around the time this came out, you started seeing movies like Two Days in the Valley. Oh, yeah. Things to do in oh. Denver when you're dead. Go. Suicide Kings, which they all have one thing in common, whether they're good, bad or ugly. They're all like desperately trying to suck trying off the tit of yeah. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> no. Right. Right. Or Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. And a little tidbit. Uh, this is how much I love Quentin Tarantino. My past dog was named Jules for the Samuel Jackson character. My current boxer is named Beatrix Kiddo. So uh, that's that's okay. how much I love <laughs> Quentin Tarantino. Well, Shane, I'm glad that you came on. Your show's great. Uh, seriously, go out there and check them out. And I'm glad that you got uh, Pulp Fiction. I feel like yeah. it's almost, I feel like the the hand of fate. Me, you got your favorite movie. The hand of fate reached my hand in to pull your name out for this one. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So next week on the QT, we'll be back with our friend, Melissa, and we'll be talking about Jackie Brown. Ooh, that's a divisive one, but we're going to have fun. So be here for that. In the meantime, go to Forgotten Entertainment. You can check out all the rest of the great shows these guys put out. Here's just a small uh, sampling of them. Forgotten Cinema, uh, yet another MCU podcast, which I think at this point is over when these are coming out. But you can always go back and listen to the uh, to the episodes. If you like beers and craft beers, cracking one open. If you like Netflix original movies, our buddy Andrew Morgan and the Nomcast is a fantastic show. And if you're into video games, two player bros. Um, so check all those out. And one more thing, if you liked Lloyd and I, if you had a good time with this show and you've never heard our show that we do, Pint of Comics, just go to uh, Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, Pint O apostrophe comics. And uh, you can find us at uh, Facebook at Pine of Comics, Twitter at Pine of Comics, also Instagram at Pint underscore O underscore comics. Lloyd, let's get out of here. We'll see you next week. Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead.